Let's open up our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 17. We made it through chapter 16 last week, and we saw God stooping down to Hagar as she was downcast, sitting there by a spring of water, wondering what she was going to do. And we saw that God tends to us, he knows our needs, and Hagar even named the well Be'er Lahai Roy. It means the well of God who sees me. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now I want us to take note of that number. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. That's the last verse in chapter 16. And now we come into chapter 17, and the first verse in chapter 17 tells us that Abram was 99 years old when this chapter starts off. 99 from 86, there's nothing said. So for at least those 13 years after Ishmael was born, it seems that Abram didn't hear from the Lord like he had many years before. At least there's no instance of contact recorded. And we don't know what he was thinking during this time. You know, we go through these dry spells. We go through these times when we feel like we're very disconnected from God. And we have all of these different thoughts floating through our heads. We don't know what Abram was thinking. Did he think, did he question, you know, is God done with me because of what I did with Hagar? You know, he really blew it. Was he really feeling down on himself? Is God looking for someone else to replace me? You know, those are all the things that we tend to think when we're not hearing from the Lord on a consistent basis. But we know that God had not put away Abram. He was not finished working through him, and he still had a plan for his life, even though Abram wasn't consistently hearing from him. God waits in Abram's life until every human means by which Abram and Sarai could have conceived is completely exhausted. There's no way, no humanly way, that Abram and Sarai could conceive at this time. It says in this chapter that Sarai was past the age of childbirth. And in Hebrews 11, 11 and 12, it says that Abram's body was as good as dead. Both of theirs were. So now in chapter 17, God re-engages with Abram after a 13-year No contact. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then, naturally, Abram fell on his face and God talked with him. Chapter 17 is, for the most part, 
a monologue by God. From verses 3 to verse 16, God is telling Abraham what he will do, what God will do. Over and over, we see God saying, I will. In fact, that phrase is used 24 times in this chapter by God. I will. This is effectively the chapter of God's will. Abram has just fallen on his face, and now he's listening to God speak to him. And this is God's covenant. You know, this is not Abraham's covenant. God uses the term covenant 13 times in this chapter. And nine of those times, he says, it's my covenant. Three times, he refers to it as an everlasting covenant. And before this chapter, God only used the word covenant once. That was in chapter 15, when telling Abram of this promise. God commands Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Now, Important to note that this is not given to him as, an, as a condition of the covenant. It's simply given as a command. I will, I'm going to do this for you, period. Walk before me and be blameless. God commands Abram to be careful to live his life in fellowship with him. And that's proven to be hard for Abram. Right? He's blown it a couple of times already. But still, this was the command of him. And he didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling him like we do today. So surely God can also command this to us. Walk before me and be blameless. And whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, we do live our lives before God. Hebrews 4.13 reads, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There is no running from El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And that's the name that God now reveals himself as to Abram, El Shaddai. And it's read as Almighty God. This is a new name that God uses for himself, and it's the first time it's recorded in Scripture right here. During God's dealings with Abram, it seems that he wants to communicate his power, his omnipotence. And look at the response from Abram here. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him. You know, I think what a natural response for us to have when God is talking to us, to fall onto our face and to listen to him. And at 99, I'm surprised that Abram's heart could handle this. You know, almighty God, I am almighty God, speaking to him. And what a reverence he must have had for the Lord, if not up to that point, after it for sure. After an experience like this, you don't call Almighty God the man upstairs. You don't call him my buddy, my buddy old pal. There's a certain reverence, a respect, a fear for him. He is Almighty God. 
It says, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is remarkably unique in ancient history. There is no record in ancient history of a deity making a covenant with a man aside from this one. There were always attempts by man to reconnect with deities and to pacify their anger by offering sacrifices and the like. That was common. But never a deity stooping down to humanity, reaching out to form a covenantal relationship with them. And this certainly foreshadows the new covenant in Christ. The idea of God bridging the gap between he and man. That idea is unique in history. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. So God changes Abram's name to Abraham. The name Abram means exalted father. But now he's called Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. And there's more significance to this name change, but we're going to wait until God changes Sarai's name to get into that. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. God now reaffirms his promise to Abraham once again. And now he goes into a bit more detail with that. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Now, this is an extremely, extremely important verse to understand because it clearly shows the everlasting nature of God's covenant with Abraham. It's not only with Abraham, but it extends to his descendants, and namely the Israelites that would come from him. They're possessing the land of Canaan, according to God's promise, doesn't hinge on their obedience to him. They will come back into possession of that land. That land the area of Canaan, is Israel's allotted inheritance. And it doesn't matter who else knows it. You know, the PLO doesn't know it. Hezbollah doesn't know it. 
They, they think it's theirs, but the Bible knows it. This is Israel's land. We know it. And most importantly, God knows his promises and he keeps them. Verse 8, also I have given to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. That tells us that it continues forever. This land at some point will never be taken away from Israel, and I will be their God. Now, after telling Abraham everything he had purposed to do, God is now going to institute a sign of their covenant for the generations. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. You see, it didn't matter who it was or where they came from. If they were in the camp of Israel, they needed to be circumcised. If a male was brought into their ranks, either by birth or bought, he was required as a sign of this covenant and a sign of consecration to be circumcised. And in the technicality of this command is great wisdom. God commands that the infants be circumcised on the eighth day. That turns out to be the perfect day to circumcise an infant. Vitamin K is an important factor in blood clotting. Babies are born with very low levels of vitamin K, which can inhibit their ability to form blood clots if they start to bleed. Vitamin K isn't formed until the infant is five to seven days old, which makes the eighth day ideal for this procedure. Prothrombin is another important factor in blood clotting. It's a protein. On the third day after birth, prothrombin is at roughly 30% of normal levels for an adult. That's on the third day. On the eighth day, however, prothrombin peaks at about 110% of an adult's normal level. And then after that, it levels out to about 100, which is where they stay for the rest of their life. So considering prothrombin... The eighth day is also the best day for a procedure like this. Very interesting, because we don't get these insights until much later in history. But they were handed to Abraham as a commandment, right here. And Abram had to do it by faith. 
Today we give babies vitamin K shots almost immediately after they're born. And that allows us to perform a circumcision before they even leave the hospital. But of course they didn't have those shots in Abram's day. He had to do this by faith on the eighth day as it was prescribed by God. And God takes this sign for his people very seriously. This was supposed to be an everlasting covenant between God and the descendants of Abraham. Verse 14 shows us exactly how serious God takes it. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Of course, the infant wouldn't be exercising faith by becoming circumcised. That would be on the parents. But if a man grew up and realized that he needed to do this as a right, and he chose not to, that would be on him. And he would be cut off from his people. Karat is cut off. And other places it's used of an actual like capital punishment. It may be used here as exile. It may be used as uh, capital punishment. I'm not sure. But either way, it's very serious. This sign of circumcision was not only useful to the Jews as a reminder of their covenant with God, but it's also seen as a symbol of a heart that's been consecrated or set aside for God. And we see this heart picture even as far back as Deuteronomy 10.16. That reads, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. You know, set aside your affections for God. Turn your heart towards God is the idea. God is also said to circumcise the hearts of his people so they might be devoted to him in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the writers of the New Testament make several allusions to circumcision. And that's mainly to help their audience, who is mainly first century Jews, better understand their relationship to Christ and what happens when they trust him. It's the circumcision of the heart. To a Christian, this imagery of circumcision is important because it speaks to the cutting away of the flesh, putting away the old desires, and living in the Spirit. The follower of Christ is no longer governed by the flesh, but the Spirit. The writers of the New Testament had quite a bit to say about circumcision. One of the main points they made was that Gentile Christians did not need to become circumcised in order to find salvation in Christ. That's a very important point that's made by these New Testament authors. And I've listed out a few references from the New Testament about circumcision for you to reference. Acts 15, Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 20, Galatians 2, 1 through 3, Galatians 5, 1 through 11, Galatians 6, 11 through 16, 
Philippians 3, 1 through 3, and Colossians 2, 11 through 12. But of special importance to us this morning is Romans 4, 9 through 12. If you would turn there with me real quick, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Romans 4, 9 through 12. Paul is making this point that Abraham's righteousness could not have been because of his circumcision. And his reason for this is because Abraham was declared righteous before God even gave him the right of circumcision. So it could not have been the circumcision of his flesh that actually contributed to his righteousness. That's the point that he makes. And in Genesis 17 this morning, we see Abraham given the command of circumcision. But when was it that Abram was declared righteous? It was back in chapter 15, 15 verse 6. Let's read through these few verses, verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. And a few verses later, around verse 16 in Romans 4 and following, Paul makes a strong case that God's promise that Abraham would be the father of many nations finds at least a partial fulfillment in every Christian who is saved through their faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham truly is the father of the faithful. Now we're going to come back to Genesis chapter 17. In verse 15, Then God said to Abram, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Now we're going to circle back around to these name changes, the significance behind them. God changes Sarai's name now to Sarah. And it's a subtle change with both of their names, but it makes a difference. He says, You shall not call her name Sarai but Sarah shall be her name. And all of this is still just being dictated to Abraham by God. He's not telling Sarah this directly. It comes through the leader of their house, 
Can you imagine that conversation when Abraham gets home? Not only does he tell his wife, honey, I have to be circumcised. The whole camp has to be circumcised. We have to do this. By the way, don't call me Abram. My name's Abraham. By the way, you're not Sarai anymore. You're Sarah. God has changed our names. So bear with me here. I am not an expert on Hebrew, but I think we can bring out an important point through this. The ancient Hebrew language was unique in several ways. And we're talking about the Hebrew before the Babylonian captivity. So the ancient form of Hebrew, it changes a little bit how it's written after they come out of Babylon, but a lot of the unique characteristics of the language are retained. And unlike the English language, it's not just phonetic, but it's conceptual. Each letter carries a sound, yes, but also an idea. It carries a concept with it. And the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the Aleph. It's written like an ox. And I couldn't find a good digital picture for you, so I drew it out. That's an Aleph in this ancient Hebrew. It kind of looks to us like the head of a longhorn, kind of tipped onto its side. And it carries the connotation or the idea of first, because it's the first letter in the alphabet. And it carries this idea of strength or leader, leadership. Because the, the ox was obviously symbolic of you know, something strong. The second letter in the alphabet is bet. Bet looks like a horizontal line with a triangle to the right. And it looks kind of like a teepee to us. Bet carries the connotation of house or family. So, for example, the Hebrew word ab, an aleph followed by a bet, means father. Ab, the leader of the house, right? Aleph and bet. Ab is father. Now, we take that one step further, the letter he is pronounced like our age. It's like a breath, basically. Heh. It also carries the connotation of a breeze, wind. And it's funny because it's pronounced that way too. It's like a breath. Or spirit. Okay, so that's what the letter he carries with it. When you put the letter he in a word, you're essentially talking about the essence of that word or the spirit of that word. Remember, ab is father. What is the heart or the essence of the father? The word ahab, which is ab with a he in it, means love. That is the Hebrew word for love. Love is the essence of the father. Now, as we look at the names of these two characters, what does God do to change their names? It's very simple. It's a small change. 
he includes a he in each of their names. He puts the spirit in them, so to speak. Very interesting, and I don't want to overplay this. It's just a peculiarity that shows up in the text. So subtle, but so meaningful. He put a he in their names. He put the Spirit of God in them. Interesting. They both had struggled with acting according to their flesh. Both of them. And they'll struggle after this still. But both the institution of circumcision and the symbolic name change are representative of putting away the flesh and living in the spirit. By the way, Sarah's new name means princess, which is uniquely fitting considering that her descendants would be royalty. God says kings of peoples shall be from her. That was also the first time that God had specified that the child of promise would come from Sarah. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. God had not specified before that that son of promise would have come from Sarah. Now he does. Verse 17, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So at some point in that monologue, Abraham must have gotten the strength and the courage to stand back up because it says he then fell on his face for a second time. And he laughed. Now, this is a joyful laugh from Abraham. This is not a sneering at God's promise, like we'll see later with Sarah. Right? This is joy. And really, there's only two possible responses that any of us can have when God blesses you to this degree. Right? You either got to cry about it or laugh about it. And there's really no other option. And I'm sure that you've been in these situations when God has just blessed you. And I know that I have. I've looked back and I've seen all the places where God's hand has been. And it makes me emotional. In Abraham's case, he's looking forward to the blessings that would come in his life. And when I look forward to the abundant, everlasting life that I have in Christ, I can get emotional. You either laugh about it or you cry about it, and sometimes both. But Abraham then thinks of the son that he already has, Ishmael. He obviously loved him because he thinks about him here. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He's hearing all of these promises concerning another son, but Abraham doesn't want Ishmael to be left out. But God doubles down on his promise that the son of promise would come from Sarah. No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. 
I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Funny enough, Isaac's name means laughter. It was a constant reminder to Abraham of the blessings bestowed on him and his reaction to those blessings. But God comes back around to Ishmael too. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. And we get more details on Ishmael's descendants in chapter 25 when we get there. Verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, with the son of promise, the working of the spirit, not the working of the flesh, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. What exciting news for Abraham. You know, he's been waiting for, as I calculate, over 24 years for this son. Ever since God first called him out of his homeland of Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis 12, he's been looking forward to a descendant. God promised to bless Abram's descendants before he even had a son. I think there was definitely a realization there that he was looking forward to a son. And for at least 24 years, he's been waiting. He's been traveling all across the countryside. And he's been patient for the most part. Now God puts a timeline on it. This time next year, Sarah will bear you a son. Verse 22 says, then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among them, the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is remarkable obedience by Abraham. At 99 years old, God tells him to be circumcised, and he does it on the same day. He doesn't even let the sun go down without obeying the Lord. And it's incredible how much respect the people around him must have had for him. I mean, you can't come home telling everyone they need to be circumcised if they don't have a tremendous amount of respect for you. And really believe that you're telling them the truth. They'd say, see ya. No more camp of Abraham for me. I'm out of here. But he must have had his home in order. He must have been a man of high integrity 
And he and his family must have been well-regarded in their little community. What kind of impression do you have on those around you? Do they see the love of Christ in you? You know, there's a little quip that goes, I can't hear your words over your actions. Will they listen when you speak to them? Do they have that level of respect for you? Now, it doesn't have to be something this crazy you're telling them about, but will they listen? But the big question is, what piece of flesh is God commanding you to cut out of your life? That's the big question for us this morning. That's the application here. What is God commanding you to cut out of your life? I can't tell you what it is. But the good news is the Holy Spirit will show you. And I'll bet you've already had something come to mind. But if not, ask him to show you what in your life is not pleasing to him. And then hand it over to him. Cut it out completely. Chapter 18. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. We are going to see another Christophany in chapter 18, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. Now, Abraham is pictured in the door of his tent by the terebinth trees of Mamre. It was a spot he loved to hang out at. And remember, Mamre was one of the Amorite brothers who went to battle with him against those kings a few chapters ago. So he's hanging out by the terebinth trees of Mamre. He seems to really like this spot. He spends a lot of time here. It's the heat of the day, and he's probably taking refuge under the shade of his tent, looking out over the landscape. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. That's good for a 99-year-old and bowed himself to the ground. There is a sense of abruptness here in the Hebrew grammar. This was a desert area, and Abraham probably saw a great distance around him. You could see people coming from a long ways away. And he just looks up, and these men are there. And he rushes out to meet them. And there does seem to be some realization on his part that these were not ordinary visitors. It says that he bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant. Now, as I mentioned, this is widely accepted as another Christophany because 
Abraham bows himself in front of these guests, they do not refuse his worship. The angels of God refuse to be worshipped. We see it in Revelation and in other places. The fact that this man, quote-unquote, receives worship and is okay with that means that this is none other than God himself. He seems to, that is, Abraham seems to understand that this is El Shaddai coming to visit him, God Almighty. And Abraham shows hospitality to these men, which was very, very important in his culture. They said, do as you have said. So Abraham turned, hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, Make ready three measures of fine mill, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Picture this. Your wife is hanging out inside. And three men come to the door. I'm sure they had hearty appetites. And you turn to your wife, zero minutes notice, and say, hey, honey, I need you to prepare a meal for us five minutes ago. No, don't go to the store. I need you to make the bread. Knead the dough, make the cakes. I've got somebody on the calf. He's getting the meat prepared, the milk. And we're going to eat with these guys. It seems that Sarah takes it well. Um, So Abraham asks his wife and this young man in his his camp to help prepare a meal for these guys. So the three men and Abraham are now standing out under the tree eating. They are not in his tent, but out under the tree. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. Then in verse 10, and he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. So while the guys are outside talking, and in this culture, the women would not be talking with them. She hung back in the tent. She was eavesdropping. She wasn't really a part of the conversation, and Abraham didn't know she was there, but somebody else did. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure and my Lord being old also? Now, take notice, that was not out loud. It says she laughed within herself, saying. That was in her mind, in her heart. Now, Sarah's laugh here appears to be very different than Abraham's laugh was. She does seem to be laughing out of disbelief. She realizes that she's far past the age for bearing a child. But she's not just making fun of herself here. She also takes a chance to take a jab at her husband. 
my Lord being old also. But the Lord heard Sarah's inner dialogue. Verse 12 said that she laughed within herself. She didn't say it out loud, yet it was heard by God. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Wow. At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. I bet she was surprised when she overheard this outside the tent. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Man, that really hits to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. It appears that God not only provided for the miraculous birth of Isaac, which would be the son of promise, but he actually returned to Abraham and Sarah their youthful vitality their ability to have kids. He altogether repaired their capacity to bear children. It says that at the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life. It sounds like God is turning back the biological clock for both of them and restoring their body's function. And this idea is supported by the fact that after Sarah's death, Abraham remarries. He marries Keturah. And Keturah bears six sons by Abraham. It seems that his vitality practically lasted him the rest of his life. And he died at 175. But even amongst this great news, Sarah was sneering. And then she denied it. Verse 15, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. It seems that she's trying to stick up from herself from inside the tent. I didn't laugh. But the Lord saw the thoughts and intents of the heart. And he said, no, but you did laugh. What a loving reaction. What a loving reaction. He could have just picked the tent up and she would have been standing there shaking, scared. Instead, he just replies, no, but you did laugh. I know your heart. In fact, you did laugh at my promise. Yet God still carries through with it. He still makes it happen as he said he would. What a remarkable scene here at the tent. And it's not over. Abraham is about to enter into dialogue with the Lord, inquiring about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we get a glimpse into the heart of a loving but holy God. And we will take on the rest of chapter 18. We'll focus next time on... Sodom and Gomorrah, and that will probably take us at least to the end of chapter 19. We are going to close our study right there this morning, and we will pick up after Christmas 
Again, a reminder, no Sunday service next week. No Thursday service this coming Thursday. If you would, please bow your heads with me, and we will close in a word of prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you.